to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Life really is better with a voiceover guy, I gotta tell ya. Love having that intro. Love having my intro music from Rod Branch at DrawingForLiberty.com. Guys, I got a big show today. I'm gonna go on a little rant, as I'm known to do sometimes. But first, I don't want to waste any time. I'm gonna bring in my guest today. He is the former Foreign Affairs, Civil Liberties, and Defense Policy Advisor to U.S. Congressman Ron Paul from 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement at the end of 2012. Before that, he worked as a journalist, a human rights worker, an election observer, and he currently serves as the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. You can also find him blogging over at lourockwell.com. Daniel McAdams, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you. And we are thrilled to have you here today. You know, I want to talk about some current events, but first, I'm a little curious. How did you first get involved in the foreign policy realm? What made you decide to make this the focus of your life's work? Well, I finished grad school a couple of years after the Berlin Wall fell and I was doing international relations and I had the opportunity to go move to Eastern Europe. So I moved to Budapest in 1993 and I spent most of the rest of the 1990s living there. I worked uh, in a number of positions, but one of them was with the British Helsinki Group. We did a lot of work in the Balkans during the Balkan Wars and I particularly spent a lot of time in Albania after the 1996 coup against the elected government there which was basically supported by the U.S. government. I had my eyes open to a degree, and I also had my eyes open to Ron Paul. I was not particularly political and didn't follow politics very much, but I kept reading one congressman writing some really great articles about what was happening in the Balkans, and I knew he was absolutely spot on because I was sitting there in the middle of it. I always wanted to meet him when I got back, and I had the chance to do that and more, so I've been very, very lucky. Well, that's funny because that's kind of the way I got involved in this, too. I started back in college, a good friend of mine, a page, a congressional page in high school, not for Ron Paul, but he had met Ron Paul and had sat down and spoken with him a few times. And he said, hey, man, you got to read this Ron Paul guy. And he sent me a link to his Texas Straight Talk column. And I started reading him and thinking, wow, this guy, this guy actually makes sense about a lot of things, a lot of things that I never thought did make sense until I kind of, you know, saw him put things so plainly. So it's interesting that we both got our start that way. Yeah, not being very ideological at the time, it kind of makes it even more profound because you realize without feeling yourself to be a particular label that, hey, this makes sense. So you don't even notice if it's left or right or libertarian. It just makes sense. And, and like a lot of people, his foreign policy was kind of a gateway drug to the other issues that Dr. Paul cares about. So I hadn't really taken them all on board, and it just got me into everything he was about after that. Yeah, and I think the foreign policy issue is what brought a lot of people into this overall movement and, you know, introduced people to a lot of, you know, the broader scope of the ideas of liberty. Now, how did you get involved directly with Ron Paul? You know, I you had the chance to meet him. How did you go from getting a chance to meet him to actually working directly for him? Well, that was quite a bit of luck as well. You know, I was back here. We left Budapest and I was living in Washington and I had uh, just been relieved of a position, shall we say, um, that I was pretty unhappy with anyway. And I had a call from someone who worked on Dr. Paul's staff and was looking to leave and just wondering if I might be interested in thinking about working for him. And so I uh, I said a quick prayer of thanks. And uh, then 9-11 happened, and it put things off for a while. It made me quite nervous. But thankfully, in October, I was there for all of the fun post-9-11 things, the Patriot Act 
and all these wonderful things that have kept us so safe all these years. <laughs> and you know, yeah, it's, it's times like that that we really need the strong voices like Dr. Paul's and yourselves to uh, when people are kind of in that state of shock and fear over something and maybe not thinking things through rationally when they're trying to put, you know, these major laws like the Patriot Act or push another war through. So, you know, maybe you came in there at the perfect time because that's exactly when we need more voices like that. Well, you're right, Mark. People were very nervous, and they were not thinking very clearly, and it's understandable. And also, Dr. Paul was representing an extremely conservative district down in Texas, very patriotic. And, you know, they wrap all of these things in the flag and in the Patriot Act, some of the most unpatriotic things that have ever been done. But unfortunately, at the time, you know, these kind of jingoistic approaches, uh, you know, it resonates with people. So it was, uh, it was a tough time. Dr. Paul is kind of a celebrity figure to a lot of people, a lot of people that have been involved in this libertarian movement over the last six to eight years or so through his two campaigns. And, you know, a lot of people, when they see somebody as a celebrity, you get a certain image of them, you see them on TV. And to us, I think we see Dr. Paul as a humble, you know, just truth-speaking man. Is he like that in real life? Is it the same guy? Or, you know, sometimes you, you have an actor you like and you see him on TV and then you hear about something in real life where they're just, you're just a big jerk and then and it kind of ruins it for you. So what is Dr. Paul like in real life? It was funny. I was talking to Tom Woods a couple of weeks ago and he asked me about, you know, what was it like for Dr. Paul during the campaigns when everything was so wild and so frenzied and uh, there was so much attention, you know, did he... Did he come in and was he different? And really the answer is he was always the same. Uh, you know, he's the consummate doctor. He comes in, he has a schedule, he knows what he needs to do and he gets it done. But the thing about Dr. Paul, you know, you see it a lot in, in public now, but in private too, he has such a tremendous sense of humor that it was just such a joy to be around him. And, you know, his staff, everyone laughed because nobody ever left his staff on the hill. All of the other offices had constant turnover. People were trying to get a better position and become lobbyists and all these crazy things. Nobody ever, ever left. So I think that says an awful lot about how people felt working for him. That's interesting because, you know, I think one thing that people are attracted to about Dr. Paul is that, you know, he he wasn't seeking political power. And it seems like it sounds from you that his staff was kind of the same way. They weren't like the rest of the people trolling around Washington, just trying to get a leg up, get to the next highest congressman and, and all that stuff. They were just there for the same reason he was, which is to spread a message and that kind of thing. We just kept getting older and older and all of these <laughs> younger, younger kids came in. So... <laughs> But that was the case. We kind of felt like we were on a mission. And, you know, we really were like a think tank in the back office because each one of us did different parts of policy. But we couldn't rely on the Republicans, you know, of course, to give us quality analyses of legislation. We couldn't rely on the Democrats. We could pick and choose some from the other, but we really had to come up with our own conclusion. So we basically had to reinvent the wheel for each piece of legislation we were analyzing. And luckily for all of us, that mission did not end with Dr. Paul's departure from Congress. It's actually continued and is picking up more. And that leads me to ask you about the Ron Paul Institute that you are the executive director of. How did that come about? And what is the mission of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity? You know, Dr. Paul decided toward the end, he was he knew that he was going to retire. And he announced it to us and everyone was uh, a little bit teary-eyed. <laughs> But he also knew that not only did he want to continue doing what he was doing, but he really wanted to accelerate it. And so we started talking about what's the best way to do that. And he decided that he'd like to, you know, continue particularly his work in foreign policy and civil liberties, which includes things like intelligence and military reform and to sort of contain it in a think tank. And the, 
The Ron Paul Institute is a project of his Free Foundation, which he founded back in 1976. So it's a new project of a foundation that he's been running for an awfully long time. So this is a way to really ramp it up and to continue with what he's doing. And, and like Dr. Paul has always said, he feels that his mission is educational. He's not a politician, as everyone knows. Uh, he's not out there to make a deal to get this or that thing, you know, passed through the house. His whole point was to educate people. And so that's really what we do. And it, operating as a nonprofit institution is an excellent way of continuing this educational tool. The Institute is very, very unique. You know, we're not writing things for necessarily for PhDs or academics. We want to write for people who are following what Dr. Paul was doing uh, on the floor and when he was in Congress. You know, we want to write hopefully engaging pieces of work that are not filled with silly language and all sorts of policy wonky stuff. We want to give people an alternative. You know, deep down, they know the mainstream media is really telling them lies, and so we want to give them a place to go to try to get the other side of the story, and we're careful to research the things that we write. We're careful to not go too far in one direction or the other, but we want to give a good alternative, and that's that's really a good part of what our mission is. And that's one thing I really enjoy about the writing. The writers there are not trying to please any one political party, and you know, any side of things, as so much foreign policy writing that we see in the mainstream is always kind of skewing to at least... You know, turn favor to one side or the other, whether it's the neocons, whether it's the Democrats. I mean, there's always some kind of bend to it. And the writers over there don't have any sense of that at all. They have a, maybe a philosophical bend towards, you know, towards not intervening all over the world and that kind of thing. But it's, it's a very fair, I think, from that perspective point of view. And we also try to have a little fun with it. We have a regular column called Neocon Watch. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's tongue in cheek. We poke fun at the neocons and we look at some of the more silly things that they've written and said and we kind of deconstruct it for people, but we try to keep it somewhat lighthearted, even though, you know, obviously it is a very serious subject. You know, we try to keep it light. But as you said, you know, it's neither right nor left. And when Dr. Paul was envisioning this project, one of the main things that he indicated that he was interested in is to continue the left-right coalition that we had been working on while Dr. Paul was in Congress. And that's one of the reasons why one of our first choices when we were putting together the list of advisors we wanted to have people like Mr. Kucinich, who Dr. Paul had worked with for years on the Hill and obviously comes from the progressive side. But it was very important to us, to Dr. Paul, to have Mr. Kucinich, who indeed is on the board, along with well-known libertarians like Judge Napolitano, who, you know, we all agree is just absolutely terrific. And you have conservatives like Representative Jimmy Duncan from Tennessee. We have Walter Jones from North Carolina is a representative also on the board. So we try to have as broad a perspective because we really are seeing the same things. So we're working for the same issues, which is peace and civil liberties. Diversity of the board there really helps with your kind of your image, and it shows you're not a partisan institute. You are, you do have a mission. You are an anti-war institute, essentially. But, you know, hey, maybe a lot of libertarians don't agree with Dennis Kucinich, certain things like, you know, monetary policy or what have you, or economics. But I, I believe he's very anti-Fed, too, so maybe we do agree on some of monetary policy. But it shows, you know, we are here for one specific purpose, and it, all the other stuff doesn't really matter. Sure, and if you remember, I think it was the end of the 2008 campaign, Dr. Paul's presidential campaign, he got together with the, I believe it was the four representatives of minor political parties. And uh, they all got together and agreed on some basic things. And you also remember Dr. Paul did not endorse the Republican candidate, 
So the idea is, you know, we had some very diverse people on the left and right running in the so-called minor parties. They all found that they could agree on some very, very important basic things. So the idea is let's work together where we can agree and let's avoid things that we can't. As you pointed out, I've, I've written a few things for Lou Rockwell over the years, but there are certainly some things that I would write over there that I wouldn't publish on the Institute website because we have to make sure that we keep our coalition comfortable with the areas that we've dedicated to focus on. And it's funny that the presuppositions people have. I remember I, I probably posted a, a Dennis Kucinich link on my Facebook once, and I got people saying, hey, don't you know he says this about this? It says this about gun control. And I'm like, okay, but what does that have to do with what I just posted? Because what I just posted was, you know, a fiery anti-war speech. And do you have anything to say about that? You know, people are so, even when you agree with someone, it seems people are so just so predisposed to fall back into that left-right, even, you know, even when it doesn't make any sense. Sure, that's the folly of politics. You know, they want us to believe that you root for Team R or Team D, and it really is kind of a of an intellectual ghetto, isn't it? It keeps people from thinking outside these silly artificial lines. Right, I mean, it's that left-right paradigm that really keeps the conversation at just a third-grade level, and that's, that's one thing I always loved about Dr. Paul. Of course, he was a Republican, but he didn't speak in terms of Republican talking points or even in terms of Democratic talking points. He just spoke what he felt, <laughs> I mean, that simply. Exactly. I was uh, watching a recent episode of Dr. Paul's Ron Paul channel, and it was a really terrific one. He was interviewing Jesse Ventura. Dr. Paul made a kind of a joke, but it was a great point. He said, you know, and it's so great that you got elected to be you know, governor of Minnesota without the Republican or the Democrat Party helping you out. You know? And that really captures his view, at least, about it. Yeah, and that is a unique feat that Mr. Ventura captured. Now, moving on to a few current events, I want to talk about, you know, the, the biggest topic in the last, you know, six, eight weeks is Syria. There was a huge push to war. Uh, there were all these reports about, you know, a chemical attack from the Assad government, supposedly from the Assad government. Now, I want to get into the specifics of that, but first, why aren't there bombs dropping right now? I mean, did libertarians and the non-interventionists, these voices essentially stop a war or at least put it on hold? Or do you think is it is it more kind of a the way the geopolitical landscape is shaping? You know, maybe the United States just can't, you know, be the world's bully anymore. Well, I'd like to be optimistic about it, and I think we should be optimistic. You know, the, the polling was showing that an absolute vast majority of Americans were opposed to the president launching missiles as a way of sending a message. You know, these are the days of uh, of Skype. You send a message in a different way, but... But more seriously, people were very opposed to it. You know, the calls coming in on the Hill were 300 to 1 against it. And I think, you know, as, as cynical as it's easy to become sometimes, there really is something to be said for people contacting their representatives and telling them how they feel. And I think that was a very, very big factor. And we should be encouraged by that. I think there were other factors that were coming into play. I don't have any evidence, but I suspect very strongly that the Obama administration was shown some evidence that their claims were completely false about who launched the chemical attack on August 21st near Damascus. I suspect that was the case. There's certainly been a lot of information on the other side, and the Obama administration produced absolutely nothing to back up their claims. Perhaps they realized how weak their position was on this and their assumptions, they got way out ahead of themselves. Radical ideologues like Susan Rice and the administration got way out ahead of the facts. So I think that was a big factor. And I think the third factor was the realization that the composition of the rebels in Syria 
would prove to be extremely problematic to the United States. And I think that put the brakes on a more assertive, robust response. If you remember, it started just being, you know, the president said, oh, don't worry, it'll just be a shot across the bow. And then they began talking about how we need to weaken his ability to make war. So it began to escalate. And I think the brakes were put on it at that point. We're certainly not out of the woods. And I think we saw an article last week in the New York Times. I think the the administration is still playing a fairly cynical game in Syria in that they've announced they're doubling their program to train these rebels in Jordan. The CIA is training them in Jordan and they're infiltrating into Syria to do all sorts of nasty things, no doubt. So they have not backed off on that end. But I think certainly this chemical weapons agreement at least pulled the rug out of the push to war. Why is there such a push to war with Syria? What really is the motivation there? Obviously, I think it seems like in some ways they backed off because maybe it's the legacy of the Iraq war. I mean, no one wants to, to be seen as the Bush administration again. No one wants to be seen as going to war for obviously faulty reasons and have it just fall apart. So maybe that is one just good legacy of, of the Bush administration. It'll make people a little more weary to jump right in there in spite of the evidence. But obviously they are strongly pushing to war. There are many voices saying we got to go to Syria still to this day. So what's the real driving force behind this? Ironically, you know, we benefited a bit from the Iraq war because it has made people more hesitant or at least quickly to say, hey, this is going to be another Iraq war. But, you know, there is an enormous power struggle going on in the region. You have both Saudi Arabia, you have Qatar, and you have Israel, that the three of them are extremely concerned about the strength of the Syrian-Iran alliance. So you have an old-fashioned balancing of power or attempting to rebalance or unbalance power. These various factions feel like they're fighting a life-and-death struggle. That may well be the case, but the issue for us is, does it have anything at all to do with us? that they're trying to remake the area. And our answer would be no, it really is none of our business, and we certainly shouldn't be involved. And when we do get involved, it's just going to come back to bite us. Now, talking about how this relates into Iran, that's something that hasn't been as much in the media lately. It's been more focused on Syria, but there has been a new election in Iran. There is a new president. There was supposed to be, you know, theoretically a meeting between him and Obama with the United Nations, which I suppose didn't happen, but... Even the talk of a meeting is more than, you know, we've had in the last 10 years or, or even longer. You know, how does Iran really tie into this? Is that the big game? Is that the big picture? Is that what they're kind of eventually still aiming to do? Is there still this desire for whatever reason to go to war with Iran? Well, I think certainly both the neocons and the so-called humanitarian interventionists are still pushing hard for war. But I think, Mark, that something extraordinary might be happening. You know, we've seen an historic phone call between President Obama and his counterpart in Iran, President Rouhani. And I think that is a remarkable event. I think the fact that they have planned to start talking seriously, and they've had some fairly high-level contacts thus far to hash out some of these issues, I think it is extraordinary. I think it's something, and Dr. Paul wrote about it in his column for this week, it's something to be cautiously optimistic about. The big caution is that, of course, the the propagandists are going to come out and try to thwart this in any way they possibly can. They're going to put pressure on Obama. And as Dr. Paul said, you know, they'll push him into saying stupid things like, oh, it was only the sanctions that got them to, you know, pick up that telephone when we called or something. It is silly to try to beat your chest rather than trying to build on something that, that if Obama understands it rightly, 
it could actually be a serious legacy issue for him if he is able to be the one to diffuse the tension between the U.S. and Iran, a decades, decades-long tension, it could be something really that we could all look back on as a positive thing. So hopefully he sees it that way. <laughs> How different do you think things would be if we were living under a Mitt Romney administration right now with his foreign policy team? Now, obviously, I think as far as libertarians are concerned, Obama is no prize on foreign policy. I obviously didn't vote for either of them, but I, I think looking at the big picture and with war being my biggest issue, I think, let's just say the Romney scared me a little more. Let's put it that way. So how do you think things might be different? Yeah, I think that the, certainly the neocons were thrilled at the prospect of a Romney, not so thrilled about a candidate called Ron Paul. <laughs> and, you don't uh, say. <laughs> I think you're right. I think things could have been very, very different the only wild card factor, and I should have put this in in the Syria decision, I think the military is a voice that you don't hear as often, and we have a tradition of civilian control, which is a good thing. However, I think the military is weary. I think they realize that we cannot physically do what's being asked of us, of the military. And I think you may have seen some more obvious pushback, perhaps, if Romney had been elected. Who knows? It's a little bit frightening even to think about. What about sanctions? I think that's something that gets glossed over all too often. What are the real effects of sanctions on the ground to the people of Iran? Well, sanctions are a failure everywhere. They've never worked properly, and people will cite South Africa as a great success story for sanctions. Even if it were the case, great, one out of how many? I wouldn't even concede that point in South Africa. You know, it's funny, Mark, I, I was on a congressional trip down in Cuba in 2003, and the Cuban government just loves sanctions because they can blame all of the failures. It's not our socialism. No, that, that would be fine. It's these sanctions. Yeah, it's exactly. So it's, it's very convenient to blame things on sanctions. So governments, I think, like them. They can hide and mask the shortcomings of their policies. You know, I was reading a really interesting article about how sanctions in Iran have hurt more than anything else the private sector, private businesses, private businessmen. Because of that, they've empowered the state sector. So what we're really doing is helping foster even more socialism overseas and destroying people that would be our allies if we had a normal, sane policy of doing business with whoever we wish to do business with. It's this insane cycle of everything we purport to be against. You know, every action we take just produces more of it and just keeps on going. Yeah, talk about, talk about all the radical Islamists that we seem to be supporting in Africa and in the Middle East. You say we're fighting against Al-Qaeda, and here we are propping them up everywhere, it seems. That leads me right into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, which is Africa. It's another thing that's not, you don't really see huge headlines about it, but the U.S. is heavily involved in Africa. I mean, maybe more so than any time in my foreign policy knowledge goes back. You know, there was a recent terrorist attack at a mall in Kenya by Al-Shabaab, which is a terrorist group that I believe has, you know, a history with the United States and its operations in Somalia. So what exactly is going on in Africa and how does that tie into the overall foreign policy picture of the United States? One of the things that's important to realize is, you know, the President Bush, I think it was back in 06 or 07, created the Africa Command. This was uh, the AFRICOM, it's headquartered in Germany, which makes no sense. <laughs> but, you know, once you get this amazing force together with all the special forces and all the military, you know there's going to be a heck of a lot of temptation to fiddle around in these places. You know, the U.S. has been technically at war with Somalia for years and years. I did a piece on the Ron Paul website a few weeks ago, 
uh, showing that drones have flown over Somalia, I think, over the past 10 years, an average of 12 hours a day. They've had coverage. They shoot. They shoot missiles all the time. They have collateral damage, i.e. killing innocent civilians. It's a cute term they use, huh? Collateral damage. It's just a, such, a, such a passionate way to uh, address the killing of people. Exactly. And on at least two occasions, the U.S. has prompted Somalia's neighbors to invade Somalia. You know, the Kenyans did it in 2011, and the Ethiopians did it in, what, 2004, 2006, something like that. So we have this history of intervening and fiddling around with Somalia. And as you say, Al-Shabaab, which was a breakaway group, that formed a few years ago, is irritated that Kenya invaded in 2011, as we would be irritated. The southern part of Somalia is, shall we say, not entirely in control of the capital. And so you have these groups around that, and, you know, the Kenyan army is striking almost a daily basis inside Somalia. Certainly just does not justify the terrorist act that occurred. But when you see the bigger picture and you see the provocations, you know, poking the hornet's nest, you should expect some sort of blowback. And unfortunately, I think that's to a degree what we saw. It reminds me of a speech Dr. Paul gave once about, it's called Chinese troops in Texas. You know, imagine if these Chinese troops just show up, they line up on the Mexican border, they invade Texas, and they kill a bunch of people. You know, a few Texans might be mad about that, and they might shoot back. But the way that the government views things, those Texans would be terrorists. So, I mean, no matter what we do, no matter where we go in the world... They can put a little, you know, fight nice generic term like collateral damage on it. But the fact is, when when you go somewhere, you invade someone's country, drop a bomb on their property, kill them, kill their family, it's going to make people angry. This is pure common sense, and it's completely ignored in the mainstream debate. Or I should say it was until Dr. Paul and the Liberty Movement and you guys came along and, and have really gotten those voices out there more. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it's people don't want to put themselves in the shoes of others, but it is the case, you know. Just look at these two special forces raids in Africa that the U.S. conducted. Can you imagine how it, and this came out when Dr. Paul was interviewing Jesse Ventura, Jesse said, can you imagine how we would feel if, as you just said, if China sent in some special forces to apprehend some terrorists around Palm Springs? You know, it's, we would be so shocked, we would be so outraged. So what gives us the right to do that? You know, the rules that we want to apply to every other country don't seem to apply to us, just because we seem to have the might. But as you well know, the dollar is teetering on the edge of collapse. What happens then? Sometimes I think maybe that's one of the good things that could happen from a weakened dollar or, you know, the economy being in trouble. Hey, maybe there's just not all this money to go killing people anymore. Dr. Paul says that too. You know, this will end. We will run out of money and it'd be better if we realized it beforehand it did something so when it does end, it's not so bad. Right, maybe we can stop the madness on our own before it just collapses upon itself. And maybe it's a good sign. Maybe the halt in Syria is a good sign. You know, maybe we can be optimistic. Well, thanks to the Ron Paul Institute and the work you guys are doing, we do have a lot of hope. Now, before I let you go, I just want to pass along a couple quick reader questions if you have some time. Sure. Great. Now, um, this is from Jason, a reader. Do you see any potential 2016 candidates that, you know, on the horizon that will present a foreign policy similar to Ron Paul's? Or do you think those days are gone? I mean, or do we just have to settle for the lesser of two evils, you know, for eternity? Well, what, you know, what Lou Rockwell has always told me when people talk about using politics as a means to an end, he said, you know, look, in, in over 200 years, this country has only produced one Ron Paul. So hoping for our saviors to come in the political realm 
is probably a futile hope, you know. So whatever the case, you know, we want to try to give people the tools to see the light and to educate themselves and make better arguments. So that's that's really what our mission is. And this one is from John, who is a contributor on our site, John Odermatt. He wants to know, do you think the U.S. should have any military bases on foreign soil whatsoever? Probably not, no. If we accept the premise, which I accept, which is that we need to defend the United States, we obviously have a constitutional obligation to defend the United States, you can't extrapolate from that thousands of military installations overseas, even hundreds, even dozens. Uh, It has very, very little to do with the defense of the United States. So, no, I don't see any scenario where we would need to have permanent bases anywhere overseas. And this last one is from me, because I forgot to ask you a few minutes ago. Do you consider sanctions an act of war? I think, yes, I think they are, absolutely. And I think international law looks at them as an act of war, particularly when they're taken to the next level where you talk about a blockade or impeding trade between the, the sanctioned country and other countries, which is exactly what the U.S. does. It's not enough for our government to prohibit Americans from doing business with Iran. We want to bully every other country in the world into boycotting Iran as well. We want we don't want the Chinese in there. We don't want anyone else to do business either. So I think certainly international law would see it as an act of war. Daniel, before you leave us, let everybody out there know, where can they find the Ron Paul Institute? How can they get involved? And where can they find you? The Ron Paul Institute is really simple. RonPaulInstitute.org. When you go to the page, you'll see some little icons up there. The best way to follow us, I think, is to uh, get on our Facebook list, you know, follow us on Facebook. We publish at least three or four new items a day in the various categories, and so those will always show up on your Facebook feed. Also on Twitter, we tweet everything that we do, so that way you don't have to keep coming back if you don't want to. Certainly people can reach me at dmcadams at ronpaulinstitute.org. I'm happy to hear from everyone. That's always nice to get feedback, and I hope everyone will take some time to go look at our site. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lions Liberty Podcast. We had a great time, and we'll definitely have you back sometime as more of these foreign policy events unfold to keep us updated. Thank you, Mark. It's been fun. Thanks. Take care. And we will be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, we are back from break. And last week, I promised you a little chat with a few other Lions of Liberty members. Unfortunately... We had some scheduling conflicts, couldn't make it happen this week. But don't worry, I ain't going to let you down. I'm going to give you another rant, another rant like I gave you last week. I ranted on Obamacare. Go back and listen to it, episode four. You can find the full archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, the Stitcher radio app. But today, I've got a rant on a different subject. But first, 
I gotta grab this glass of whiskey because we call this the whiskey rant. I take a little sip of whiskey. You can hear it clingling here. And then I go on my little rant. So we're going to take my sip and then we'll get going. All right. Bear with me. Now, guys, I got to confess, you didn't hear a, a great sigh of, ah, oh, that was so good. This is not whiskey I'm drinking. I totally pulled a fast one on you. This is actually apple juice. Because I got to go to work in a couple hours and I can't just be here drinking whiskey, recording the podcast. I can record the podcast, but I, I got to save the whiskey till after I go to work. But, you know, it's funny how I got this apple juice. I got it last night. It was a little chilly here in SoCal. And, of course, chilly in SoCal is not chilly, um, you know, to those of you in the Northeast or the, uh, you know, the less uh, temperate regions of the United States, you might say. Uh, chilly here is, like, in the 50s and uh, rainy, but it was raining, which it rarely does here. It was a little chilly, so, you know, we felt my girlfriend and I wanted a nice warm drink. So, you know, we were thinking, how about a nice, a nice warm, like, cider? So I went out, I had a couple things to get at the store, and I was planning on picking up some cider, some apple cider to make, you know, we'll heat it up, put a little rum in it, a nice cozy drink on our, our little chilly 50 degree SoCal night. And I'm looking for, for cider in the store. I'm looking all over the place. I'm looking in the juice section. I'm looking in the fruit section, looking in the vegetable section. There, there's just no fresh cider at all. You know, and I know what cider is. I grew up in Connecticut. We had a cider press at my house. I know what cider's all about. So, you know, I, I don't find any cider and I, I, I go back to the juice aisle. I'm like, all right, is there like cider hiding here somewhere? And, you know, I see this one aisle of, like, generic, there's apple juice. It says apple juice on it. Right next to it, there's something that looks similar, the same brand. It's not even a brand. It's, like, a non-brand. And it says apple cider. Now, look, I know what apple cider looks like. I can see this this thing in this bottle clearly looks like apple juice. But, hey, look, I've been in the store 20 minutes uh, it's my second trip to the store, by the way. I don't even need to get into that right now. Uh, so I said, screw it. I'll buy this thing that says apple cider. It's a good, it's like three for five bucks. I'll bring it home. We'll heat it up. We'll just try to make it as good as we can. I know it's not going to taste like real cider. And, you know, we'll heat it up. We'll put a little rum in it. And, you know, maybe, maybe no one will notice that it's clearly not apple cider. So we go home. Sure enough, yeah, my girlfriend sees it. She's like, yeah, that that's not cider. I'm like, yeah, I know, but we'll give it a shot, all right? We're going to warm it up. We're going to put rum in it. We're going to add some cinnamon, and we're going to see how it is. So we do the whole thing. I boil it up. I add a little rum. I add some cinnamon. I mean, these they, like rum and cinnamon. I mean, how can you go wrong? But it didn't help. It was gross because I bought this crappy juice. It said cider on it. The label said apple cider. But this was just generic, concentrate, just garbage, run-of-the-mill apple juice that should not be near anyone's lips, especially not in a nice, cozy rum drink. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mark, what the heck does their little apple juice story have to do with liberty, with libertarianism? It teaches us a little lesson, I believe, about labels. We have to be careful when we see a label on something. I don't just mean a product. I am more talking about people, politicians, people that may label themselves something. You know, politics is all about labels. Democrat, Republican, left, right, conservative, progressive, all these labels. But they're meaningless if we don't look behind the label. 
and look at what's really going on inside. Libertarianism, libertarian ideas are becoming a lot more popular. That's a good thing. That's thanks to people like, not me yet, really. I mean, I'm, I know I'm reaching a few hundred of you out there at least. Like, I see the numbers, but, you know, it's the, the Ron Pauls, the Lou Rockwells, the people that are, have made this, have gotten this broad reach thanks to the Internet. You know, people are changing their views on things, but, you know, at the same time, politicians, they always have their fingers to the wind. They know what the electorate, the electorate likes. That's a tough word to say after, after a sip of apple juice, let me tell you. And I can barely call this juice. I just did it for the purposes of this demonstration. There's a lot of politicians out there now using the libertarian label. Hey, this guy's a libertarian. He's a libertarian Republican. I don't want to get into specifics. We have many other future whiskey chats with my fellow Lions of Liberty to go through more specifics on this. But it's something to think about. All right, because if what's inside that bottle, if what's inside that libertarian politician is just the same old Republican mainstream apple juice with a different label on it, well, maybe we shouldn't buy that either <laughs> just because it says libertarian on it. Just like I should not have bought this crappy apple juice, crapple juice, God, that was terrible. I did it. I'm not going to edit it out because it's a whiskey rant. It's an apple juice rant. Guys, we need to think about labels. We need to look behind the labels at all times. If someone calls themselves a libertarian, great. Maybe they are. Look into them. See what they say. Listen to their words. Watch their actions. More importantly, does this person with a libertarian label Vote for sanctions on other countries. Daniel McAdams, you heard him on our podcast today. Sanctions are an act of war. It's very clear. It prevents trade between free people. It hurts the civilians of another country. You need to think about labels. Look behind the label. If you look behind that libertarian label and you don't see that kind of murky color, you don't see that, that cider, it just looks like the other Republican apple juice garbage... Don't buy it. Leave it on the shelf. Wait for the real cider. Go seek it out. You might have to go to a farm somewhere. You might have to come to lionsofliberty.com. But hey, all I'm asking you to do is to not rush, to think about it, to look what's behind the label, and go from there. Guys, one thing I do not do enough of is plugging this website, plugging all our stuff, where you can find me. You might have just stumbled on this thing from, uh, you know, from the Ron Paul Institute. Maybe you heard Daniel McAdams and you found us. We are not just a podcast. We are a website, lionsofliberty.com, where our mission is to advance the ideas of liberty daily. You can find us there. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us on Twitter, at lionsofliberty. We got a Google Plus page. We got an email list. If you go to our website, lionsofliberty.com, the upper right, you'll see very clearly labeled, sign up for our weekly digest. Every week on Friday afternoon, you'll just get an email with all our posts from the week, so you don't need to keep checking back. You know, so I know a lot of us are busy. I'm busy making all these podcasts, and I go to real work too. I swear, I'm doing it in a couple hours. You know, we're busy. If you want to get in your email box, go sign up. Find us on iTunes. You can listen to me in the car. Just download it to your phone. Hey, you don't even have to download it. I don't care. 
I, I see the download numbers, but hey, even if you stream it directly through iTunes, I'm happy. You can find us on the Stitcher Radio app which is a cool little app you can download, make your own little radio station. Maybe Lions of Liberty podcast can be the flagship. And please, guys, I really love your feedback. I've gotten a bunch of emails. I really appreciate getting them. My email, you can email me directly. It's mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Email me questions, suggestions for future guests. Anything like that, negative feedback, positive feedback. Hey, this is my only my fifth episode. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just drinking apple juice and going on rants. So, hey, if you have anything to add, anything you think I need to change, I'm very, very open to ideas. That's what this is all about. That's what we're about at LionsLiberty.com is ideas. Guys, thank you so much for joining me once again. Thank you to Daniel McAdams. Please check out the Ron Paul Institute, ronpaulinstitute.org. Please check out my man, Ron Branch, who wrote this tune that is leading you out of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been another fun ride here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Until next time, live long and live free. Mastering is John Daugherty.